Jeff Lasonic was like many of us who grew up in Northern Virginia. After a good middle-class upbringing, he went off to college and started partying and experimenting with alcohol and drugs. His story becomes remarkable, though, in what happened next. On November 29, 1989, while high on laughing gas, he ran a red light and rear-ended another car, killing its two occupants. He was later convicted of involuntary manslaughter and sentenced to 37 years in prison. Jeff joins us to tell about his life journey since then and the power he discovered that radically transformed a terrible event into an amazing story of grace, forgiveness, overcoming, and redemption. Jeff, welcome to Grace in 30. Well, thank you so much. Jeff, welcome. Welcome. And, and I want to thank you, as Ed said, for for giving us this time. This is great. Um, I, I love your story. The, the depth of it is, is just incredible. Um, let's jump in. Set the stage for us. Um, tell us about the, the night of the accident, um, you know, what you thought afterwards, and, and give us a little bit of, uh, of what happened that evening. Sure. Um, and thank you for having me on your program tonight. Uh, at the time, I was 23. Um, I was driving down busy Route 7, uh, Leesburg Pike in the Bailey's Crossroads area, and um, I happened to be inhaling nitrous oxide, uh, also called laughing gas or N2O, and I had a blackout. And so I drove for, I'm not sure how long, maybe a mile or so, unaware. And at the intersection of Route 7 and Carlin Springs Road, I ran a red light and a car was making a left turn uh, onto Route 7 and I rear-ended them. I didn't know it at the time, but neither one of the the drivers, the passengers in the other car made it out. So it was very unsettling, of course. Um, I was taken to jail and I didn't find out about what happened until later that night but it was it was traumatic to say the least mm. and and you know the shock of all this i guess you know being taken into prison what what you know t- tell me about that next day what you were thinking as, as sort of this whole process started unfolding well it was kind of surreal to me um you know i couldn't comprehend how i'd gotten here and uh you know waking up in a jail cell and the magnitude of the the charges against me my bond was a hundred thousand dollars for each count of involuntary manslaughter and i thought that was like i couldn't comprehend that i mean it, it, yes it was a very 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 serious crime but it wasn't intentional and you know i i was a middle class you know person my family was middle class there was no way they were getting me out of jail so i kind of resign myself to you know i'm going to have to tough this out and and see what happens and you were sentenced to 30 years plus seven years is that correct well yes let me know when you when you want a little bit of the backstory um but yes i did get 30 years for this uh offense i did have some some marijuana in the car um there was some sentencing confusion Uh, originally it was scheduled to be 20 years uh, however, um, the sentencing body in Richmond, Court and Legal, that interprets sentences, made a mistake early in my in my my term, and um, informed me that my sentence was 20 years. Plus, I also had seven years for previous crimes, 
petty crimes, but you know, serious nonetheless, which we'll get into. Yeah, we're going to talk about that because it's kind of amazing that you you were in prison and you expected to get released at one point and found out that you weren't getting released. But before we we discuss that, um, tell me about the families. I mean, evidently you did not uh, decide to go to trial. You decided to plead guilty to these charges, correct? Yes, that's correct. Um, I did have a, a, a private attorney, and I said, what what can I do? What can I do to minimize their pain, you know, and they're reliving this incident, and what can I do that's in my best interest? And he told me, plead guilty. You know, plead guilty. Um, we'll throw yourself on the mercy of the court. You'll spare the families the trial and the pain, and we'll see what the judge does. And so that's what I did. So the judge evidently gave you a pretty stiff sentence because the people were fairly well respected who uh, who died in the accident. Yes, the judge um, was actually the chief judge, and he was retiring at the end of the month. And um, the two people who were in the car were respected members of the community, older older ladies. And um, so he made an example out of me. He publicly stated in the courtroom, he said he doesn't understand why young people use drugs. And, uh, you know, it's sometimes I don't understand that. But, you know, that's that's the sentence he gave. It was much harsher than, than the normal guidelines. But, so you're sitting in a, a prison and you realize you're facing decades, possibly, in, in jail. So, so how did you start to adjust to that? How did you start to say... Uh, you know, I'm looking forward. I've got. I got to survive somehow and do this. What were the key things that happened to you at that point? Well, there were a couple of key things. Um, the first was my salvation, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, the other thing was that I was sentenced under the pre-1995 uh, no parole guidelines, so I was under parole. Uh, keep in mind that the sentence that I was uh, given at the time was 27 years. So I was eligible for parole after just under five years. So I first started going up for parole in 1994, which was, as I said, less than five years after the actual accident. So looking at it from that point of view, it seemed like it was manageable. Okay, I'll do this. I'll do what I have to do, um, make productive use of my time, and hopefully the parole board will grant uh, favor to me. And they didn't? Did you go up, come up for parole multiple times? I did. Um, I came up in 1994 and was turned down for the serious nature of the offense. And I ended up going up 15 times altogether wow. until I was released on mandatory parole. That is, because of good time credits, they have to let you go. That's right, and, and I, I don't think many people understand this who moved to the state of Virginia, but, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in 1995, the state of Virginia eliminated voluntary parole. Is that correct? That's correct. They yes. went to what's called truth in sentencing, where you, are, you have to serve 85% of your sentence. So who were some of the people that came alongside you, you know, as you're, you're preparing to go to the, the primary prison and serve your time, encouraged you and, and, and showed you the light? Well, uh, that actually starts in the jail. Um, uh, I actually worked right on Washington and Wilson Boulevard at a place called J.K. Auto Parts um, right before I was arrested. 
And I used to play basketball at a church at night um, called Cherrydale Baptist. Um, and um, some of your listeners are probably familiar with it. Yep. And um, so after the accident, um, one of my coworkers who also played there got in touch with the pastor, and his name is Jeff Good, and told him my story. You know, and I guess Jeff felt moved by that because he reached out, started visiting me in the Fairfax County Jail in 1990, and started ministering to me and started witnessing to me. And so that was very encouraging at the time. Um, then, as I said, there was a prior um, incident uh, when I was 19, um, and after flunking out of Virginia Tech, I happened to come across a checkbook, and I had somewhat low self-esteem at the time, and just, I don't know what came over me, but I ordered some pizza and used this check to pay for it, and they accepted it without checking my ID. And so I did it several more times uh, for pizzas and subs, always for between 10 and $15. And... Um, to make myself feel important, especially you know around young girls, you know nineteen like myself, and um, anyway, of course people noticed that their checks were being used, and then one time they sent a, a, a officer to ask for ID, and of course I didn't have it, so <clears throat> I was arrested, and being my first offense, um, I was sentenced to seven years, but it was suspended, and so. Because of that, then I was on probation. So when this happened, I was on probation. So that's where the extra seven years comes in. Now, after I pled guilty in March of 1990, uh, the other jurisdiction had to send a deputy up to get me to go back to have my probation revoked because I was still on probation. And so they sent up uh, Deputy Daniel Levesque and from Montgomery County, Virginia, and uh, he drove me all the way back and ministered to me all the way down into the Blacksburg area, which is on the outskirts of Virginia Tech. And uh, I spent three days down there. And on the way back, which was April 25th, 1990, he ministered to me as well and asked me for a commitment of faith in Jesus Christ. And that's when I gave my life to the Lord. And so that was a very... Uh, transformative time in my life. Uh, I like to say that Jeff Good planted the seeds, and it was someone else who who watered it. And then there was also a deputy in the Fairfax County Jail, Deputy Harrison, who ministered to me in the jail as well. And he witnessed to 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 all the the inmates. I mean, he was fearless in his love for Christ. And were you amazed at this? I mean, and shocked to see this in, in this kind of environment, that, that these people came up to you and, and started talking to you and ministering to you in this way? I don't know that I would say I was amazed, but it definitely was um, It was very comforting. You know, it was very um, inspiring to and encouraging to have people who were putting themselves out there and helping me out just because they love Jesus Christ. I mean, they didn't know me from Adam, but they were willing to 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 go forth as they're led to do and show the love of Christ to me, even as I was facing serious, serious charges. 
So you have that foundation, which is good, and you're heading into the prisons. And when we talked on the phone, I, I, my attitude was sort of like, what were you in sort of federal prisons? And they were kind of easy. And, and you mentioned some of the places you were. Why don't you spend a minute or two talking about where you were and, and how you, you laid low and stayed safe while you were in these prisons? Yes, that's right. Um, I started out, of course, because uh, my sentence was um, somewhat lengthy. Uh, back when I was uh, first sent to prison, they had three different security classifications, level one, two, and three. And three was the most secure. So I was sent to a level three institution, which was Greensville Correctional Center. Um, <clears throat> again, I I pretty much steered clear of trouble, uh, you know, just by minding your own business. But there were people that got assaulted. There were people that got killed. Um Again, not very often, like few and far between, um, but it did happen. Um, I was only I only felt safe actually one time. I had just gotten commissary, and there was a guy, six foot six guy, standing in my door asking me what I was going to give him, and I told him nothing. Um, and he was a, I didn't know what his intentions were, but he moved on. Um, but I was prepared to defend myself because otherwise it could have been like an ongoing thing. And So that know, was it during the first week that you was, were there? It was within the first week and a half that I was at Greensville, and that was the most harrowing time I was there. Um, after about three years, I, I was moved to a level two institution, and um, which is kind of like medium. Uh, my point scale actually uh, mandated that I should have gone to a level one institution or even to work release, but because of the serious nature of the override, I was, or, I'm sorry, because of the serious nature of the offense, they used that justification to give me an override. So they kept me at level two. So I was always behind a fence. Tell us, how long were you in prison when you got to a point where you thought you were going to be released? In a matter of weeks. Yeah. And then you found out, <clears throat> no, it's 37 years instead of 27 years. And Yes. Uh, so on November 24th, 2003, I was called into the assistant warden's office. And uh, as I walked in there, I saw a ring of correctional officers, you know, ringing the office and um, questioning, you know, in my mind, what's going on? And um, as I was being escorted to the to his office by the operations officer, he said, "You're not in trouble." And so that was a little reassuring. But um, when I sat down, I knew something wasn't right. I had been scheduled to be released on December eighth, two thousand three. So twenty four days before I was supposed to get out, and that's after you know almost fifteen years. Um, so. It ended up where I was informed that Court and Legal had misread the sentencing order, that it wasn't 27 years, it was 37. So I thought to myself, well, there has to be something, some mistake. I'm, I'm getting out of here in 24 days. And, and the assistant warden said, no, I'm afraid it's not a mistake. And, uh, you know, I stayed calm. You know, I had the peace of the Lord in my heart. Um, I knew right then that it wouldn't do any good to flip out on anybody, to go off, to to do anything violent. 
Uh, it would only be counterproductive to myself and everyone around me. I thought to myself, okay, this is a mix-up. We'll get it straightened out, and we'll move forward. Uh, except it didn't turn out that way. Yeah, you mentioned that uh, typically when that happened to other inmates, they would get in fights, break things up, wind up in the hole. So you were able to provide a good sort of witness to how you should react to some, something difficult like that. I was, and, and you're correct. Uh, uh, not all, but a lot of inmates do engage in self-destructive behavior when something bad like that happens. And they do end up in confinement, solitary confinement. And uh, as I said, I had the peace of the Lord. Um, several you know, of my fellow prisoners you know, commented to me afterward that they would have been in the hole. They would have been locked up. And I said, well, you know, I know Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, and he's Lord of my life. And, um, you know, I didn't have to do that. So, Let's talk a little bit about forgiveness. Um, yeah, your story is just uh, is incredible. I mean, you, you come to this place of grace. You, you overcome this the best you can. And then you you, know, you you come upon this this forgiveness with with the family, as I understand it. T- tell us about your relationship with and how this came about with uh, one of the the uh, victims reaching out to you. Yeah, sure. Um, in 1994, uh, just as I was around the time I was going up for my first parole, I got a letter from Betty Emmons, um, who lives in Annandale. Uh, telling me that she would like to come and visit me and my initial reaction was you know to myself was well what for so she can put arsenic in the prison <laughs> vending food and right. now, now she's know, the daughter of one of the women that she's was killed. she's the daughter that's right she's the daughter of one of the ro- women that were in the car and and of course i was a little apprehensive at the time but i did write back and asked her why she wanted to come and see me and she wrote back and said she wanted to come and tell me that she forgave me and uh, it was something that, that she needed to do. And, and so I'll just tell you just a little bit about this. Um, she, she had her own problems with substance abuse uh, prior to that. Um, also, my father, uh, who's now deceased, was a recovering alcoholic. He had 35 years clean and sober. And um, Betty had been kind of being prompted within herself to come and reach out to me. And as she told me later on, she was at an AA meeting and she expressed that desire to want to forgive me. This was several years after the accident. And, uh, and so it turns out that my dad was at that meeting but left at halftime. And at the end of that meeting, uh, someone came up to Betty and said, do you know the father of the guy who committed that accident was at this meeting, but he left at halftime. And Betty uh, took that as a sign that it wasn't the right time. So she left it alone. But several years later, she did reach out to me. Um, I ended up getting transferred uh, from a prison down in Chesapeake up to uh, Coffeewood Correctional Center, which is in Culpeper. And in early 1995, Betty, her husband, Charles, who goes by Chip, and her father, Thomas Robinson, who was the widower of one of the ladies, did come to see me. And they did offer their forgiveness. Um, you know, they were all 
born-again Christians. They all forgave me. They said that's what they had to do, not only for me, but for themselves as well. And and she became an advocate for you, right? She was on television saying that you, you know, the parole board, I mean, she, you know, th- this kind of, Ed, reminds me of some of our guests that we encounter and and through their grace and through their incredible stories, we become advocates for them. I think of, of Larry Thompson as someone that we're both advocating for right now. And, and you're one of these people. I, I think when people hear your story and relate to it, they, they want to advocate for what you're doing. Um, so I can understand this. But, yeah, what an incredible story. Well, yeah, that's right. She um, she knew that I had been getting turned down after turned down. And in 2002, um, she she decided to contact um, WRIC, which is uh, the ABC affiliate in Richmond, and um, and just let them know, you know, okay, there's a there's a person in prison. Yes, he he did a, a horrible thing, although it was accidental. And uh, you know, I'm the victim's daughter, and I think he should get out of prison. I think he should make parole. And so they did a segment on um, on my story uh, that aired back in 2002. Um, then, of course, I kept getting turned downs, as I said. Um, the news about my sentence confusion was in 2003. And then in 2004, um, she contacted Seven on Your Side, and Andrea McCarran came down and did a story as well. <clears throat> so you eventually got out of prison, and um, you were homeless for a period of time, correct? Well, I was, and <clears throat> let me just backtrack for just a little bit. Betty was so great that she actually went to the parole board three consecutive years to advocate for my release. He drove down to Richmond um, in 2004, 2005, and 2006, and um, and it was you know so amazing. But after the third turndown that she had actually come down and I told her don't worry about it because it seemed like Virginia was dead set on making me max out but yes in 2009 right before I was actually scheduled to get out and as it happens I was scheduled to go in to live with Betty and Chip Um, they have a house a large house in Annandale with um, a lot of rooms that they do rent out to people but at the last minute um, Chip's mom had some medical issues and she had to move in so that actually took my spot so I found myself without a place and I ended up in the Kennedy shelter in um, in Fairfax County which is adjacent to Fort Belvoir and and you mentioned to me when we talked on the phone that it felt like a vacation after prison <laughs> well yeah uh, I know that being homeless is never fun but when you've been in a situation where you are surrounded by fences 24 hours of the day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, you know, having a 9.30 p.m. curfew is not all that bad. So I was able to come and go, you know, although I did have to abide by the rules of the shelter, it was nothing like being locked up. So we've probably got six and a half minutes for the show now. I want to make sure we, we talk about two things. One is is kind of quickly go through some of the things you did. You, you really worked hard. You got a job at, at Safeway in the dot-com department, and you rose up to be a, a manager. You worked in a Chick-fil-A, took care of your dad while he was uh, uh, suffering and passing away. 
Uh, tell us the story about when you got your license back and, and you got a car from your father because it was really remarkable when I spoke with you, the, the feeling you had from getting that 24-year-old car. <clears throat> yes, that's right. It was, uh, it was 2009, and of course I didn't have a license when I got out of prison. And so I did take the necessary steps to do that. Um, August the 10th, I actually got my license, but I couldn't get my insurance to be activated until August 12th. And so that's when he did give me uh, our old car, one that I had actually joyridden as a teen back in 85 um, or 86 or before then, but it was still kicking. And um, yes, it was 24 years old, but it was the vehicle, so to speak, <laughs> that I needed to get back and forth uh, to work. And I worked in Bailey's Crossroads as uh, just a regular shopper in the dot-com department, which is Safeway's online department, kind of the corollary to Giant's Peapod, for those who are familiar with that, the home delivery service. Um, I was able to quickly rise up in the ranks, uh, become a, a temporary manager after only seven months, and within a year I was actually a dot-com manager in Washington DC and I did that for over three years uh, my father became progressively worse um, because he was almost 80 and I became his primary caregiver so I did step down to um, take care of him uh, when I re-entered the workforce uh, one of the things that I, I realized was that I had been missing uh, the faith component of my life because working at Safeway I had to work Sundays all the time mm -hmm. And so when I re-entered the workforce, I wanted to, to work for someone where I could get Sundays off and go to church. And the first thing that popped in my mind was Chick-fil-A because they're closed Sundays. So that worked out fine. Uh, my father passed in June of 2014, which is the same month that I returned to work. Um, however, the owner-operator switched and went to a new location. And when the new owner-operator came in, um, on January 1st, 2015, he informed me that he wasn't going to rehire me. And uh, when I asked him why, he said, well, because you are you have a felony. So that was like kind of a, a shock, you know, uh, you know, over 25 years after this happened. But and from a Chick-fil-A. From yeah, unexpected. a good Christian. <laughs> yeah, that's very good. Well, and <laughs> keep in mind, though, that the, the owner-operators don't necessarily reflect the corporate values. Uh, yep. Corporate was in for a, a month of a transitional period, and they were completely fine with me. They welcomed me with open arms. You, you know what strikes me about you through this whole thing, uh, uh, not only your gray story, but that you became a man who was in the world but not of the world. Mm. And that these things, that these worldly things that destroy people, that give people ups and downs, that your faith just, just circumvented all of this. You know, that you are here in the world, but you are not of the world, that you've given yourself over to your faith. And that, that has sort of allowed you to deal with so many of these things that, that look, many of us get upset when we're, you know, 10 minutes late for a soccer game in this area and like to hear your experience and how you battled through all this. But, but really not battled's not the right word. I, 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 you know, I think of you, I, and Ed, you say this so many times, I just say, I think of you now as a man in the world, but not of the world, a man who's given himself over to his faith. And, and what that's done for you. So we, there is so much to talk about in your story, and we're running super short on time. Oh, okay. you, you wound up 
you know, working now at the same shelter you stayed in when you got out of prison. You're, you're sort of in a second position, position in command there. Mm-hmm. And you're also on this, this county program. You're the chairman of the advisory council to try to end homelessness in Fairfax by 2018. And what I wanted to ask you to do is in the next minute or so, issue a call or two to action to the listeners uh, about things you want to challenge them to do or think um, that are dear and near to your heart. Yeah, I would love to do that. Um, and uh, as you said, I am now the residential coordinator at the Kellen, uh, Eleanor U. Kennedy Shelter, which is run by New Hope Housing. Um, it was a blessing, uh, you know, my managerial experience, my uh, my experience with homelessness and uh, other skills made me a perfect fit for the job. And so I helped move people from homelessness into housing, which is really fulfilling. And it's really something that uh, needs to be done. We live in one of the richest areas. Fairfax County is the richest county or in the top three in the United States. And yet, uh, at the last point in time count, we had over a 1,000 people who were considered homeless. Uh, please go to the newhopehousing.org website if you'd like to get involved. Um, also, I have an online ministry with my wife called Jeff and Gia. That's J-E-F-F-A-N-D-J-I-A, United for Israel. And um, we would love for you to click on that and see what we're about. We have an online ministry. And we're just doing great things for the Lord. Jeff, we're going to have to have you come back. Uh, yeah, and, and maybe as a special guest. You know, I, I'd love to get your insights when, when we have other guests come on and talk about whether it's prison ministries, homelessness, just great stories. We'd love to have you back. I think, you know, uh, this has been an amazing 30 minutes, and I think we have a lot to, to talk about with you in the future for sure. Well, thank you so much. It's been a quick 30 minutes. Yeah, it goes quick. It, <laughs> it does. always goes by quick. Um, look, so we'll wrap this up. Uh, so basically, this is Ed and Sal signing off from Grayson 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Everybody, please have a great evening and be sure to tune in to Grace.